0: Well, we have come to the end of our series entitled Things to Come. So things to come are now things of the past. No, we're we're finishing up. This will be our eighth time together on this topic. We've been working our way through Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And we've, of course, branched out from there. We've looked into Daniel, the book of Revelation, other places, kind of tying together all that Jesus spoke to his disciples there at the Olivet Discourse. But today, as we finish up, there's one more passage that we need to spend some time in to kind of fill out our our biblical literacy, or at least our introduction to kind of the prophecy concerning end times. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38. We'll be looking at chapters 38 and 39 here this morning. And I've entitled today's message, What Time Is It? What Time Is It? And I think what we'll see today is as we look at this passage of Scripture and we kind of compare it with what we see going on in the world today, we'll be able to recognize that the time of what Ezekiel prophesied is actually unfolding and very near uh, the time that we're living in. And I hope that that will encourage us not only from the the truth of Scripture and just the prophetic wisdom of God. 2,500 years ago, Ezekiel wrote these words, and yet they seem to have great relevance here today. Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes a battle. Now, we've been looking at some battles along the way. We looked most recently at the Battle of Armageddon, And uh, that's a detailed description we find in Scripture. But this Scripture, this passage, actually gives us even more detail, specific detail about the battle and the follow and cleanup, the burial of of those that died during the battle. And uh, it's, it's worth taking a look because, from what we can tell, this battle has not yet occurred in history. We have no historical record wherein this battle that's been prophetically uh, given to us has ever taken place. So we look for this to be brought to us in the future. But when? When will this happen? What's the timing of this specific battle? Well, um, a couple of things that we, we know are, need to be in place. First of all, chapters 36 and 37, the prophet Ezekiel talks about a regathering and a rebirthing of national Israel not a spiritual rebirth, but a national rebirth. Uh, you may be familiar with the, the prophecy of the valley of the dead bones. And God asks the prophet, can, can these dead bones live? And the prophet said, you know God. And, and God trying to show the prophet that God has a plan, a future plan to rebirth, regather, and you know, uh, bring national Israel back into existence. Ezekiel prophesied during Uh, the same time that Jeremiah prophesied. It was at the end of the nation. It was during the Assyria had already taken the northern kingdoms and dispersed them. And now Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was getting ready to come and destroy the southern kingdom. And the nation of Israel was really losing their national identity. The people were going to be taken captive and scattered. Now, they would come back to the land 70 years later. You know that they came back, they reinstituted worship there in Jerusalem, but they never again again regained their national identity as they did prior to their captivity. They were there when the Roman Empire was in power, but they were really just a Roman province. They weren't their own nation again. In fact, it wasn't until 1948, a recent history, that Israel was rebirthed as a nation following World War II. You know the history. Uh, and the, The nation of Israel came back and was reborn, and they now exist as their own nation, their own sovereign nation. They're living in the land of Israel, and the Jewish people have come and returned, and many are still returning. So this battle takes place after that prophecy of the national Israel being revived. And so now that it has happened, we recognize that we are even closer to what might be the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Throughout the passages that we'll look at today, the the Lord speaks through the prophet that these things will take place in the latter years and in the latter days. And so it seems to be a reference to something happening later in history. We believe we are now living in that later time of history. It is distinct from the battle of Armageddon. Now, let me just say, many, many people wrestle on how to interpret this prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39, where to place it into, into the prophetic timeline. Some have said, well, it's really just a, a fuller description of the battle of Armageddon. But that's not really, it, it doesn't seem to be a reasonable explanation of this passage. And I've put just a few things up for you on a chart. I hope I can get that up. There you go. I don't know if that writing is large enough for you to read, but I'll walk through it. Just some comparisons between what we know about the Battle of Armageddon and then some of the things that we'll be looking at here in the book of Ezekiel. Now, let me just say, church, this is something of a Bible study this morning, okay? Uh, I, I there's just no other way to get through this material, but to kind of just give it to you, you know, in almost a classroom setting. I apologize for that, but I, I think this is worth us really knowing together. And I believe that it will encourage you spiritually. So just bear with me. This is the last of the things to come series. So if you don't like this kind of thing, you know, we'll be almost done. All right. Armageddon. Armageddon, we know that the Bible says in the book of Revelation that demonic forces go out and gather all the nations of the earth together there in Israel for the final battle. Ezekiel, on the other hand, as we'll see in our text, it's very specific nations, not all nations, and they're not drawn by demonic spirits but rather the hand of God himself he puts hooks in their jaw and draws them to battle in Israel completely different than battle of armageddon also we know that we know from the battle of armageddon the timing of it is at the end of the tribulation the antichrist is in power we know that he has already come and established his uh, uh, his rule there in Jerusalem, he's committed the abomination of desolation. He's set himself up as God in, this, in the uh, place uh, at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under occupation by and under control of the Antichrist. We know that Jews will be under, going, uh, undergoing great persecution during that season of tribulation, often referred to out of Jer- the passage in Jeremiah as Jacob's trouble completely different than the Israel that Ezekiel is going to describe. We're going to see Israel defined as dwelling safely, confidently at peace in their land. It's a very different picture politically and nationally for Israel, the battle of Armageddon versus this battle in Ezekiel. We also know that uh, there will be heavenly signs uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of that that we've recently looked at concerning the battle of Armageddon and the surrounding events in the, in, the, in the heavens. No mention of any of that in the book of Ezekiel. Those are pretty conspicuous signs that Ezekiel doesn't even mention. So we don't think this is the same battle. Uh, probably most importantly is Christ's return is the central issue at the battle of Armageddon. It is Christ himself visibly appearing and making war with all of the armies gathered against Israel. Christ is the the victor that comes and brings the battle to the armies at Armageddon. No mention here in Ezekiel of Christ's return, his appearing, he's not mentioned at all. God is active, but it's not the the event of Christ's return. So seems to be a very different battle altogether. Also finally Armageddon, we know at the end of Armageddon immediately it follows this judgment where God Jesus judges the nations and then they immediately enter into the millennium, that thousand-year rule and reign of Christ upon the earth. Again, Ezekiel Ezekiel talks about a very different follow-up to the battle. No mention of millennium, no mention of Christ on the earth judging rather There's months and years of burying the dead and disposing of the weapons of war that are left over after this battle. So those are just a few distinctions that we ought not to confuse this battle with the battle of Armageddon. The question is then, where does this take place? Or more importantly, when does this take place? Where in the prophetic timeline? Let's get started. We'll take a look and hopefully we can get an idea of how close we may be even now to this battle coming to fulfillment. Look with me, chapter 38. We'll, we'll be looking at these first seven verses. We won't read through all these chapters. It's too long. I'll bring, pick out some highlights. But we want to get started here and identify who are the participants of this battle. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, and splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Well, now we know who the participants are. One of the big ones is Gog of the land of Magog. Does that help anybody? Who, who, is the, who are these people? Oftentimes in scripture, you know, because nations change by name throughout history, powers, empires rise and fall. But there are times in the Bible when God actually speaks to the ancestral people that inhabited a specific land. Those people that were kind of after the flood, the nations that came out from Noah, all went and settled, and they had ancestors that settled in various areas. That's the case here. Gog of the land of Magog uh, is someone that's being identified, and most um, prophetic uh, Bible students see this as a reference to Russia. And again, there, there are many different opinions. I'm offering you mine. I welcome you to do your own research. I've done a, a good deal of reading on the subject, and I think this is the accurate understanding of this, of this people. There are some uh, outside the Bible historians that talk about the Scythians who settled in the far north, and they are uh, referenced and identified to be the people of Magog. And uh, that's actually the Greek reference to Magog is this uh, people that called the Skidians. And there are some good historical documents and many scholars far more in depth than I have, you know, than I am able to, to discern have really seen this as a reference to Russia. So Gog seems to be the leader of this land of Magog and the prince over these provinces of Magog, Rosh, Meshek, and Tubal. It's a reference to Russia. And we'll also see as we work through our text, several references to people coming from the far north. If you were to to look on, on the map, if you took Jerusalem and went due north, eventually you would go almost right through the city of Moscow. Russia is directly north. You have to go through a couple of other places, but eventually you get to Russia and the capital there in Moscow. Let's see who else is identified here in the text. Verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Now there's some names we can actually recognize, are with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Gomer. Now I know, I know of a Gomer, but that's probably not the same Gomer we're referencing here. G- Gomer and all its troops. The house of Togarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companions that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. So there is this confederacy of nations that are coming together, Gog or Russia being, uh, the ruler of Russia being the lead of this battle. Next in line would be Persia, Persia, of course, is a reference to modern day Iran. In fact, just in recent history, Iran used to be known as Persia. So it's Russia in in league with Iran and a few other nations that are mentioned here, Ethiopia and Libya. This would be a reference to the Islamic North Africa, not including Egypt, but Libya, and then just south of Egypt, you have Ethiopia, might also include some areas of Sudan. These, are, these Islamic forces seem to be aligned with Iran and Russia in this coming against Israel. Also, Gomer and the house of Togarma, And these are, seem to be uh, references to modern-day Turkey and possibly Armenia, possibly the eastern edge of Europe. So again, we're talking about people groups that settled in certain lands, and these are the modern-day provinces where these groups settled and existed. So we have Russia, Iran, Turkey, and some of these Islamic nations in North Africa all gathered, coming against the nation of Israel. I have a quick map that you can look at. It kind of gives you, again, I, I don't know how well these, this shows from where you're sit, sitting, but you get an idea of all of these surrounding nations. Israel, of course, there uh, at the, on the uh, eastern edge of the Mediterranean. Directly north is Turkey, Gomer and Togarma, Magog up in Russia, Persia is Iran, and they come and for Israel. And then the, from the south, you have Ethiopia and Libya together, all of these aligned to come at this particular battle described for us in Ezekiel 38. Let's read on. Let's learn a little bit more about the motive and possibly the timing when this will take place. Verse 8, After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel which had long been desolate, they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. So the prophet is saying, still speaking to Gog, and saying, you're going to do this after many days, in the latter years. Remember, this was written 2,500 years ago. In that time, you're going to come against the land where people have been brought back from the sword, gathered from many nations, and are now living again at the mountains, in the mountains, and in the land of Israel. And we know the Jews have been dispersed for many, many years. Not since 586 BC have they existed as a nation. They've been scattered. They've had some assemblance there of a province, some assemblance of their faith. But In recent 2,000-year history, they have been not a nation scattered throughout the nations, but when when Gog comes and leads his armies, they will be regathered there. The prophet is saying they're going to be there. They're going to be dwelling again in their their country. Sounds like the setting we see today. Verse 9, you will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God on that day, it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Something's going to come into this leader's mind. I'm going to go into this land. This people that have now been gathered, they're now living there and prospering. And if you've been to Israel of late, you know that it it is a thriving place country and a thriving economy, and that they are dwelling in the land peaceably to some extent. There is obviously still turmoil in certain pockets and areas of the nation, but in general, they are there and they are enjoying quite a prosperous time. But an evil plan will come to take plunder and to take booty. Now, for many years, Bible students wondered, well, why would Russia and these other nations be interested in little old Israel? I mean, yeah, they've got a good agricultural thing going. They've got a pretty prosperous economy. They're pretty thriving people. But what's there to come and take over this little small country? What's the appeal? What's the booty? What's the plunder that Gog and his armies are going to come for? Well, we're not sure. We don't know what will yet unfold. But I will say in just recent years, and I mean this just in recent last three or four years, a large, one of the largest natural gas deposits in the world has been discovered just off the coast of Israel. Now, you can Google and research this. It's there. They're just now beginning to mine it, just now getting uh, you know, rigs to actually begin to take and, and utilize this natural resource. There's enough there to supply Israel for its unforeseen future and to make Israel a potential exporter of natural gas and energy. And the most logical market would be Europe. They're very close and they're readily available. Now, Russia, Russia's main economic income as a nation is natural gas, and oil. It's Russian energy. They sell a good portion of Europe's energy, and that's a big thriving part of Russia's economy. Could it be that in the years to come, as Russia's resources deplete and Israel's resources come online and offer competition to Europe for this abundant resource, could it be that that will be the hook that gets into Russia's jaw and says, you better get down there and take this spoil for yourself so that you can continue to be a thriving economic world power. We don't know. These are speculations, but these are clearly possibilities. Let's look on verse 13 in our text. There's some bystanders that are mentioned here, not engaged in the battle itself, but seem to be mentioned as those who are taking notice. Verse 13, Sheba... Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Sheba and Didan are a reference to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia will not be a part of this Confederate army that goes against Israel. Rather, they stand on the sideline and they take notice, and it seems to be something of a protest. Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're just taking over this country so that you can have their resources, so that you can gain the wealth from this country. There's no conflict that you're resolving, you're just being aggressive. So it's a protest. But not only Saudi Arabia, Shidan, Sheba and Dedan, but another group is listed here, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions. Now, again, a lot of speculation about who are the merchants of Tarshish, who's Tarshish and who are the young lions. Maybe you remember the story, story of Jonah when he was called by God to go and prophesy to the nation of Nineveh. What was his first response? Out of, I don't want to do that. I'm out, of, I'm out of here. I'm going to sail as far away from Nineveh as I can possibly get. He went down to a city of uh, named Joppa there in Israel. And where did he set sail for? Tarshish. Tarshish is thought to be some extreme Uh, western area away from Israel. Some have speculated somewhere in Europe, possibly off the coast of Spain. But some also scholastic work has been done, research has been done, to determine that possibly Tarshish is a reference to Great Britain, the extreme uh, coast away from the Middle East in, in terms of the European continent. And so it may be that this is a reference to the merchants of Tarshish or the European Economic uh, Commercial Entity and the young lions. Now, her young lions, that's a reference to those younger nations that are the cubs, if you will, of the mother lion, the, the colonies that have, been, that have raised up, nations that have sprung up out of the nation Tarshish. And of course, if it is Great Britain, who do you think the Young Lions might be? The United States, Canada, Australia. These two will be standing against this invasion and saying, hey, what are you doing? Now, they're not active in this battle. They don't seem to come to defend the the territory. But Saudi Arabia, possibly some of the European countries and possibly the United States, Canada and the Western world, really making a voice against what Russia and these Arab nations in league with her are coming to do in Israel. Again, church, this is just food for thought. Uh, There is some research that this is not just crazy thinking. This is possible uh, interpretation, but we have to be, we can't be dogmatic. We have to just uh, understand that this may be what's, what's actually getting ready to take place. So let's take a look at what the outcome will be. They're going to come. They're going to come against Israel when she's dwelling in the land. And again, we won't take the time to read all of this uh, chapter, but just take a look with me, picking it up in verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. And it goes on to talk about the outcome of this battle. Again, you're going to be gathered. I just found this out in between services. Pastor Allen was telling me that Russia is one of the few nations that still has a standing cal- cavalry. They still use horses in battle uh, for some, certain uh, advantages on certain terrain and certain weather. Interesting. They're listed here. But... Um, They're coming, but God is saying, I'm bringing you in, I'm drawing you in because I'm going to glorify myself among the nations. You can read on in your own time, the battle does not go well for Gog and Magog and all her armies. God's fury comes against them. It seems that God himself intervenes and defeats this large army gathered on the mountains of Israel, a great earthquake. It says that God will call for a sword against Gog. This may be a military strike that God uh, ordains and oversees, quite possibly Israel defending herself, but God is involved in the impact of it. It says that every man's sword will turn against his brother. There'll be confusion on the battlefield. They'll turn and fight even against one another. This great army all trying to be organized, come together. When the earthquake comes and the sword strikes, they will actually turn and destroy one another. And God will be magnified. Chapter 39, a few more details of the battle and we'll, we'll finish with a couple of closing scriptures today. Verses one through eight, we get more details concerning the battle. I want to draw your attention to one verse, verse 6 because this may have some additional insight for us. And I, verse 6, I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Most of the description here is, talks about what happens to the, to the armies that are there on the land of Israel. They're being destroyed, they're being wiped out. But then this little verse 6 is inserted and... I will send fire on Magog. Magog is Russia proper, so I'm going to send, there's going to be a strike on the mother homeland as well, Magog, and on those who live securely in the coastlands. Uh, those who live in security in the coastlands, the coastlands is simply a reference to a people in a di- on a distant coast. They too, God is going to ha- strike them with fire as well. Now, some speculate, could this be some type of a nuclear exchange between Russia and the United States at this time? Russia, Magog, fire is going to come on Magog. The battle is in Israel, but fire will strike in Russia and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Who might that be? Well, We certainly live in security on a distant coast, but we have the ability to engage possibly via some kind of a missile exchange. Now, this is just speculation. Please do not leave today saying Pastor Richard said we're getting ready to go to nuclear war with Russia. I have no idea how this is going to play out, but these verses are of interest, aren't they? They do get us seeing that, you know what? things are all red the chessboard seems to be kind of arranging for a possibility here we don't know until god does it but we know that god will do it the, the the rest of chapter 39 speaks about the aftermath of the battle and really the cleanup of the battle and again just some highlights for you look at verse 9 then those who dwell in the cities of israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. So immediately following this battle, there will be such a destruction out in the land that they will be burying and burning weapons, uh, burying the fuel and the, supply, the supplies of war that they, that they locate there for seven years. So it's going to be quite a slaughter and quite all these armies gathering with all of their equipment. And now it's there in the land of Israel. So they'll be, they'll be burning fuel for seven years. Uh, Not only that, but there's going to be some very special burial details that the prophet gives us. This is interesting that the prophet would give us such specific information about how even the, uh, those who fall in battle will be buried. Let's take a look. Verse 11. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea. And it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Haman the gravesite of Gog, the the, uh, burial place of Gog. Verse 12, for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it at the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land. And when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hammond Gog. Are you getting the picture here? It says that travelers are not allowed to go through the land. For some reason, this battlefield is off limits. And for months there. It says they're going to become renowned at burying and disposing of these bodies. And, and, and they're going to be professional barriers. And that, that they're going to be search parties that go through. And when they find bones, they're not going to bury them or touch them themselves. They're going to put a marker and then the, the barriers will come and properly bury these bodies. It almost sounds like the fallout or the aftermath of a nuclear exchange, doesn't it? It almost sounds like there's some radioactivity that, that there's concern for, and these bodies have to be disposed of by you know, specially trained individuals. It says that they're going to become renowned during this time. Israel, as they bury and handle this, they're going to become actually renowned for handling this type of a, of a crisis. Again, speculation we don't know. It may just be God striking them from, with an earthquake, it, we, we, but it, it's interesting that the prophet gives us so much detail, or the Lord, Holy Spirit, giving us so much detailed information. I think the Lord wants us to know that when this happens, you will have no doubt that God himself has done it and accomplished it. There'll be so much detail that you'll know. Wow! It'll almost just, Wow. 2,500 years ago, the prophet wrote these things, and now we're seeing it on the news channel. When we, you know, CNN every night, you'll see these events take place. Or Fox News, whatever you prefer. <laughs> but God is going to be glorified. And this is the reason that God is doing and allowing this, because God is, is, is making a statement to the earth. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. Now, as I mentioned, students, Bible scholars uh, debate as to, well, when does this happen? Does this happen before the, the rapture, before the tribulation begins? Does this happen at the initial, kind of the initiation of the tribulation because they, they burn the fuel for seven years? That's the length of the tribulation. Is this what kind of kicks off the tribulation, this great battle? And now this call for peace, this call for a you know, false antichrist who promises peace, will that set the stage for him? These are all possibilities. We're not sure. But here's what we do know. These things are happening before us today. We can see that these, the stage is being set, set for this. Never in history have these particular nations been aligned Never in history have these particular nations all been kind of have an an opportunity and motive to come against Israel. But we're seeing that in our day. But God is going to do it to glorify himself. Verse 21, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed. It's going to be on every news channel there is. And my hand, which I have laid on them. His glory, both amongst the Gentiles, all nations are going to see that God has delivered his people it 's going to be a miraculous they 're going to be so outnumbered it 's going to be everyone 's going to be anticipating Israel is just going to be pushed into the sea, and then God is going to give them this great victory and all the nations are going to know it verse twenty eight concerning Israel, they too are going to recognize God's hand. Then they, Israel, shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who sent them into captivity amongst the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God." God is going to use this to awaken the spiritual identity of Israel as well. They are nationally reborn, but spiritually they remain in darkness. God is going to use this event to awaken them to the the, only God could have performed this and delivered us. God himself has gathered us back as a people and is now sustaining us as a people. When it comes to prophecy, I mentioned this earlier, Israel, you might think of Israel as God's timepiece. You know, God uses the nation of Israel throughout history to kind of alert history as to where we are in the prophetic future. Israel is significant in terms of prophecy to come. And as we see this particular battle described for us, you have to recognize that, wow, that's, that could happen. That, you know, a few things happen in, in, in the world today, and those things could actually start to take place. Russia and Iran are very cozy in the Middle East. You know this, right? That Russia is arming Iran and Syria. Syria is on the border of Israel. You can go to Israel and go to their northern border and look across at the Syrian landscape. And there, there is no fence. There is no wall. Now, there's plenty of you know, support and security, but the border is just right there. And now Russia and Iran have forces there. How could this escalate and turn into something very similar to what we read? It could happen at any time. So we have to recognize that God is trying to say something concerning his timepiece. Hey, what time is it? You better take a look at the watch of the nations and Israel and recognize that we are in the latter years. Israel is back in her land and regathered and nationally reborn. These nations are getting, we could see a coalition uh, of these exact nations mentioned by Ezekiel. What time is it? I think it's time to recognize that God is getting ready to move in prophetic history. Why do we study these things, church? Why, in my heart, has it been important for us to take this journey together in these recent weeks studying the things to come? I think, it's, I think first of all, it's good, just good biblical literacy. We need to have at least some idea of the prophecy landscape that we live in. But I also pray, this is my, my, my desire, is that as we see these things, something of God's wisdom and glory, you know, the, 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 that he could write these things and know these things, something of his controlling and moving history towards his desired end would strengthen our faith. It would encourage us. It would motivate us to live for him. These things are true. God really does have a future and a hope and a destiny. And God is, is really working history towards these things. I want to be ready. I want to be a part of what God is doing in the earth. A couple of verses here and we'll close today. And I'll have them for you on the overhead. Romans chapter 13. The Apostle Paul had this readiness in his heart. And he, he writes to the church in Rome. And he says, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. Boy, if it was true then, how much more true is it today? The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. It's time to put off these things that entangle us, lust and strife and fighting and drunkenness and revelry and partying. It's time to put on Christ and walk in the light and live for Him, making no provision for the flesh. Christ is my love. Christ is my focus. Ephesians 5 verse 15, a similar exhortation to the church at Ephesus. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. How redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's the first thing you need to do is what's God's will for my life? How am I going to redeem the time if I don't even know what God has for me? Understand the will of the Lord and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, a a fellowship of worship and encouragement, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, an attitude of Gratitude and thankfulness, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This humility, looking to help and serve and love one another in the body of Christ. What time is it? It's high time. What time is it? It's time to redeem the time, to to buy back the time, to use wisely the time that God has entrusted to us. He says, don't be drunk with wine, for this is dissipation. That word dissipation, from which we get our word dissipate, it speaks of wastefulness. You're you're, you're wasting time. You're dissipating the time that God has entrusted to you when you're drinking into drunkenness. God, God, God wants you to redeem the time. Don't dissipate it. Don't waste it. Use it wisely. Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. I'll close with... One last verse, you don't need to turn. You'll know this verse, you've heard it before. This church in Ephesus, Paul wrote this letter and said, guys, don't dissipate the time. Don't waste your time, redeem it. It would be just a few years later that Jesus would send another letter to the church at Ephesus. It would be the church that he told the apostle John to write in Revelation chapter 2. So not very long, this church that was really the, the kind of the, the main church in that area in Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and so many churches and ministries were sent out and planted. And, and Paul warns them, hey, don't, don't be wise. Don't, don't, don't dissipate the time. But just a few years later, Jesus has to send them this letter. I know your works, your labor, your patience, There are good things, there are things I can commend you for, church. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works. Boy, how easy we can forget our first love. We become so caught up and distracted, we forget what time it is. It's time to live for the Lord. It's time, maybe for some of you, to come back to your first love. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for this time that we've spent in recent weeks looking at prophetic truth. And today, Lord, we conclude with just a glimpse at this passage in Ezekiel that lets us know lord we're we're living in prophet, we're living out prophetic history and lord we don't we don't read these things to somehow create fear or anxiety lord my hope is that these things will produce something of a security and a strength we live and serve a god who has all things under control. But Lord, as we close here today, my heart is mindful of those that may need to respond to you. The point of seeing the the signs of our time, Lord, is to remind us that we have just but a window of time. And Lord, it may be that you will return very soon. It may be that, Lord, years will go by and and we won't see you until we go to be with you. But either way, we're going to stand before you and there's going to be an accountability for the time that was entrusted to us. And so, Lord, I want to pray for any hearts here today that that need to respond to this truth. First of all, maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord in a personal way. You've never really given your life to Jesus Christ and asked him to come into your heart and forgive you of your sins and begin a, a life that he has planned and destined for you. I would say to you this morning, it's high time. It's high time. Now is the time to give your life to Christ and begin this blessed journey with him. Maybe you're here today and you need to come back to the Lord. Maybe God spoke to you out of that passage in Revelation that you need to come back to your first love. Maybe you started well. And and like the church in Ephesus, there's still some good things there. There's still some patience. There's still some works. Nevertheless, the Lord has some some things, some issue with you. And he wants all of your heart. And he wants you to come back to that first passion, that first love, when you first were saved and you remember how how it was all about Jesus and Jesus was really the center of everything. And maybe you've drifted from that and you need to come back today, recommit, rededicate your heart. I want to pray for you too. So if you're here today, you want to receive Christ as Savior, maybe for the first time, or you want to rededicate, recommit your life to him, come back to your first love, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand, let me see you, and I'll pray for you right now. Anybody here today? God speaking to you. Hand up front here. Hand over here on my left. Hand over there in the back on the aisle. God bless you. Up here in the front. God bless you. Dead center, center section. God bless you. And over here on the aisle, Okay. Anyone else? A number of people responding. We're just going to pray just before we close in a song of worship. Anyone else? You need this prayer today. Amen. So, Lord, for these hearts responding to you today, I pray that you would meet them, Lord. Lord, that letter you sent to the church in Ephesus, it wasn't to condemn, it was to give them opportunity to return, because you loved them. You wanted that, that relationship that was a part of their life when you were their first love. And so I pray today, Lord, maybe some are coming for the very first time and you are in truth going to be their first love as you come into their life and cleanse them of their sin and set their feet upon a rock and give give them purpose and, and your spirit giving them grace and help to live the life you've called them to. And Lord, I pray for those hearts that they would come and say, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Help me to live the life that you've called me to. I I want to redeem the time. And for those hearts coming back, Lord, meet them as well. That's why you called to them. That's why you touched them this morning, because you love them and you want to have that sweet communion afresh and anew with them. I pray that you would grant these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me today? Thank you for your patience today and tracking through these passages together. I pray they'll be of blessing to you, not only now, but in your walk with the Lord. Have a great afternoon. Lord bless you.